From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are extremely grateful to have the opportunity to talk with UW-Madison's Stephen Kentrowitz, Professor of History and Affiliate Faculty in the Department of Afro-American Studies and in the American Indian Studies Program. We are excited to talk to Professor Kentrowitz about his research and teaching and how they speak directly to the current moment and much more, including recent debates about Confederate statues and monuments and so much more. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Thanks for having me. Before we jump into anything else, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what your research is about and what you do here at the university? Yeah, I've been teaching at UW-Madison for 25 years. Um, and my work is on the 19th century United States and more recently 19th century North America more broadly. I was trained as a Southern historian, uh, migrated from Southern history into the history of Northern black communities and then over the last 10 years have been uh, migrating again into the history of uh, Great Lakes Native America, uh, and in particular, the history of the Ho-Chunk people. Uh, the, the theme or the red thread that runs through all of this is a, a, an interest, maybe a preoccupation is a better word, with questions of citizenship and belonging, um, how uh, American societies, especially in the 19th century, have and have not uh, incorporated uh, people, what that incorporation has meant and not meant, how people have experienced it, how they've resisted it. Uh, so this has meant working on uh, white supremacist politics, on insurgent black politics, and on the very complicated relationship between Native Americans and American citizenship. It sounds like you are the perfect person to talk to right now. So recently you published an article with the Center for Urban Leadership in response to a question from a former student uh, regarding the widespread protests, both peaceful and not. Can you tell us a little bit about this email you got from your former student and what motivated you to write your comprehensive response? Yeah, so this was an email from a, a recent student who had taken my first year uh, large lecture class, uh, a class called Who is an American? And the student, uh, like many other people, had encountered the, um, the protests following uh, the, the murder of George Floyd. and had found himself unsure how to respond. Uh, and in an email to me on May 31st, which was the day after the first large uh, protest in Madison, and uh, after uh, that protest or elements of that protest had become uh, violent on that Saturday night, the student wrote to me uh, trying to explain where he was coming from and get my, my assessment of what was happening. He described himself as a, uh, a fairly conservative student, um, also as a Jewish student who had lost or nearly lost family uh, in the Holocaust and therefore felt that he was maybe more sympathetic or empathetic to uh, the experience of minority groups than, than others. I'm sort of paraphrasing his words here. 
And he wanted to know whether I thought that the, the protests as they taken place were gonna be helpful or harmful uh, to the, the cause that the, the protesters had been uh, advocating for. And um, his, his note really sparked something in me. I had found myself thinking very hard about these questions uh, over the preceding uh, couple of days. Uh, like, like many, many other people, I'd watched uh, video after video of, uh, of, of these police killings and become so horrified by them that, in fact, I will confess that uh, I have not been able to bring myself to watch the, the entire video of the, of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, but that's just, that's just a sign of uh, how, how potent these have become over time. And the student, though, was not responding to that video. He was responding to the protests. And that response to the protests struck such a chord in me because it, it's such a common experience of my students, especially my white students, to, to wonder about the efficacy of protest, to, to be all in favor of a kind of particular vision of legitimate civil protest, but to be very uneasy with anything that goes beyond their kind of cartoon version of what Dr. King and the freedom movement look like. So I set about trying to respond to him. And as I began writing, I realized I had to back all the way up and basically write a mini lecture uh, with embedded links that, that tried to capture my understanding of what that freedom movement in the 1960s was and was not, and how, we, how that ought to help us think about what this moment and this movement uh, could or could not be. So you mentioned like the, the cartoonish version of the movement that a lot of people might have that centers around only some of the things that uh, MLK has said. What is more of like a real vision of what the movement looked like and is looking like? Yeah, so, well, I mean, to begin with, the, the Black Freedom Movement uh, that, that we think of as the civil rights movement, you know, roughly in American imagination, roughly from uh, the Montgomery bus boycott to uh, either the March on Washington or the Voting Rights Act, so say Selma to Montgomery and then, and then the Voting Rights Act in the 1965. That decade more or less brackets how most Americans are taught to think about uh, the Black Freedom Movement. But that's a, that's a very particular angle on the Black Freedom Movement. It, it leaves out many really important currents, uh, ranging all the way from you know, sort of very technical legal challenges uh, spearheaded by the uh, Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP and, and others, um, as well as by the International Labor Defense. Um, but all the way from there to, you know, armed revolutionary resistance. So, so the Black Freedom Movement is vast and, con and contained multitudes. And the version that, that we've kind of um, ensconced as part of the American national canon, uh, the part that we've kind of sanctified, is, is only a piece of it. And that piece of it really only worked, that is nonviolent, nonviolent direct action only worked uh, because of the violence that was mobilized against it. So violence is implicit in nonviolence in that way. And was only popular uh, to the extent that it was, which was not very at the time, uh, because the alternative increasingly seemed to be, and later on proved to be, uh, a, 
more a more violent kind of uprising. Um, and I think a fair understanding of how political change came about in the United States and how even the formal kinds of desegregation that took place in the United States in the 1950s and 60s came about has to take into account the really crucial role of violence and the impending threat of violence in shaping the success of the movement. And by thinking of it only as a nonviolent movement for social change, we miss the broader, deeper, and much more morally complex uh, uh, calculus and challenge that, that uh, the Black Freedom Movement posed in its moment. And the same thing is true today. Um, people have been mobilizing against and protesting against uh, police brutality and police violence and police killing uh, for a hundred years. And it has been the spark for virtually every uh, what used to be called race riots, we might now call urban uprisings, uh, since 1917 at least, since East St. Louis. Uh, but peaceful protest by itself and political movements for reform have apparently produced uh, very, very few results. So it's not surprising uh, to find people who have had enough or much more than enough uh, turning to other strategies. This round, it wasn't just this spark from George Floyd's video that started all this. What would you say the pandemic contributed to this as well? And I, what I'm, I'm kind of alluding to in this is the pandemic had already started to widen all the gaps and inequities in America. Was it George Floyd's death that sparked this flame? You know, <laughs> I think that Historians uh, are going to be arguing about this for a long time to come uh, because it's very hard to explain why a particular uh, spark catches in a particular moment. I think your intuition, uh, broadly shared intuition, that the pandemic has something to do with it, uh, that, that, that seems almost self-evident, and yet we don't know yet exactly how, but it's clear that the um, the much greater vulnerability and mortality of, of African-Americans and other people of color in the face of the pandemic. And I mean, literal human mortality, but also vulnerability to job loss, um, to uh, the incredible inequity in accumulated wealth between white and non-white Americans. Uh, all of these vulnerabilities compounding um, made this a particularly raw and and pregnant moment uh, for, for this kind of, 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 of action. But why this particular killing? Um, I, I can't tell you. I don't, I don't know that we will ever know why it was this moment and not one of the you know, countless other such moments also captured on, on video that, that led to this. Yeah, with all that, and especially considering how our like contemporary social media world, cell phones and videos of, and documentation of police brutality like George Floyd um, is so prevalent, but it also is present when people are trying to, and I'm using air quotes, bring down professors and teachers who some say are out to indoctrinate students into their liberal worldview. How is your approach to teaching topics like white supremacy and racism 
and the freedom movement changed in the face of all that? Well, I won't pretend that I haven't had moments of anxiety uh, about the possibility of being surreptitiously taped or, or, or videoed while I'm speaking. I, I don't believe that anything that I've said in class or um, in a you know in a teaching context uh, it can be fairly interpreted as being indoctrination or any kind of incitement or anything else. Um, though, of course, like all people, you know, I make mistakes in how I say things from time to time. But what I do worry about is um, our social media culture is extremely poorly designed for uh, reasoned or rational dispute. And uh, I think uh, people who spend any time on Twitter, for example, uh, understand that what appears that the debate is almost a joke of a word on, on Twitter. People don't debate on Twitter. They, uh, they fling insults and bon mots at best uh, and abuse and doxing and, uh, and all kinds of threats at worst. And people's images and words and videos are excerpted in ways that do violence to their meaning and to their intention uh, and are used against them in a host of, of other ways. So what appears to be a forum for, for conversation and debate, I think is really anything but. And that's a, that's a reality we've had a very, very hard time actually adapting to. Uh, many people, including I must say, uh, the signers of the recent Harper's letter, uh, act as though the internet is kind of a Habermasian public sphere, and it just isn't. It's something quite different and quite quite a bit um, more um, volatile and uh, dangerous than that. Uh, it's got very positive aspects as well, and we can do all kinds of mentoring and idea sharing and resource sharing that we could not do before. But as a forum for, for civil and civic debate, I think it's incredibly mis miscast. The flip side of this is that the, the volatility of it is that, is that it makes it possible to distribute ideas, content, and uh, emergency notification, if you want, at an incredible speed. Uh, the, the, the upside of that, right, is that the video of George Floyd's murder could circulate the world in a matter of hours and become the spark for this protest movement uh, around which I still have some, some really great hopes. Um, the, the flip side of that is that anybody's image uh, can be excerpted in a way that fairly or unfairly causes them to be the, the victim of a Twitter mob. And in a world with um, basically for most people at will employment uh, and um, with the cupidity of most uh, business leaders and, and other managers of large institutions, uh, people are very, very vulnerable to the representation of, to other people's representation of them on the internet. So, so this is a very, um, very fraught and dangerous moment, not just for teachers, you know, uh, who have comparatively good job protection, at least uh, those on the tenure stream, uh, but, um, but for all kinds of people. Yeah, those are all extremely important things to consider when we're talking about the intersection of social media and our current political moment. Going off of that, what is your take on the kind of era of citizen journalists that 
has kind of sprung up, especially on Twitter um, or like on Instagram when people are sharing information about protests in certain hashtags or, you know, there are people actively filming police at protests in order to capture something that they think the American people should see. What is your take on like uh, these citizen journalists? It's a pretty incredible moment. Uh, you know, a lot of us who grew up reading dystopian fiction or other kinds of science fiction were ready for the, the sort of universal surveillance state, but I don't think that any of us were ready for the sort of self-surveillance state, um, that, that the public sphere would consist of people uh, uh, pointing cameras at each other. And uh, that that's produced all kinds of interesting finds and interesting results and, and uh, but I, I don't know, I don't know what happens to, to journalism as a profession, especially when the institutions of journalism are being, uh, gutted by economic forces, um, hedge funds and venture capitalists among others. Uh, and, uh, and instead of, uh, a professional core of journalists, we have a much larger, but much less well-trained core of people who, as you say, are citizen journalists. I think there's great virtue in the latter, um, but uh, I wish we weren't. Uh, I wish we weren't at the same time losing the former. Yeah, you bring up a really interesting point uh, when you talk about like dystopia and science fiction. I guess George Orwell in 19, 1984 never thought about us pointing cameras at each other. That's a really interesting point. Kind of now turning back to the back to looking at the BLM movement, what is your response to how the American people have responded to the movement? Like, especially now that support has shifted away from not supporting BLM to a majority of Americans now um, getting behind it and getting behind some of the civil protests. I've never been more surprised or heartened in my life than by the uh, degree of support that uh, Black Lives Matter has garnered in the last uh, six weeks. Uh, I wouldn't have believed it if you told me that it would happen. Uh, I think, uh, uh, as you know, as Ta-Nehisi Coates said, wow, I feel hope. And that's a wonderful thing to feel. Um, like, like a lot of people, um, uh, I think I've, I've read James Baldwin for, for many, many years. And always been moved by his capacity, usually near the end of an essay, to summon up a kernel of hope and to hold it out as the possibility of redemption for the nation. But I'll confess that uh, in, in the last you know, three, four years, I, I felt more despair than hope, uh, particularly around the history of racism and white supremacy in the United States. Uh, and, and this moment and this movement and the response of a surprising number of white people, uh, mostly young people, but not only young people, uh, in support of this movement has, uh, uh, has really given me a sense of possibility for the future uh, of a multiracial democracy uh, that, that honestly has felt hard to capture uh, in, in, in the late 20 teens. Yeah, that's definitely reassuring to hear something maybe not so reassuring. What is your take on the president's response? This president's calling card has always been white supremacy. 
And to pretend otherwise, I think, is to um, to willfully misunderstand how his how his career developed. This was somebody who's you know who basically tried to call down uh, the legal forces of lynching against the Central Park Five, uh, who were later exonerated and whose exoneration he's never accepted, uh, who promoted the heinous and transparent fabrication of birtherism, uh, and who wrote to the presidency on that in, in, in many respects. Uh, so this is somebody absolutely overt and shameless in his, um, in his willingness to, to use white supremacy as uh, a wedge to build a constituency, to build a, a core of support. And what's been truly disheartening is the number of people willing to give him a pass on that or unwilling to look seriously and take, take that seriously. Um, so, you know, the, the president's role in all of this has been wholly malicious and destructive. Perhaps by being that in such a full and unmodulated way, he's made it easier for people of goodwill uh, white people of goodwill to understand what's going on. Uh, that would be the only uh, positive, if completely unintended, consequence uh, of his response uh, to this and, and so many other matters over the past years. Yeah, and so recently he's really dug in on Native's language and language surrounding historical monuments. Why do you think he is focusing so much on uh, these symbols, like, do you think it is to speak to his base that he has developed over the years? Yeah, I, I think, I think that's the only, that's the only way I can understand it, certainly, is that he has concluded that um, his political prospects, and even if he fails a re-election, um, his prospects for maintaining a core audience for whatever future um, enterprises or activities or networks he has in mind uh, requires that he retain a core of support that is in all but name white nationalist and that um, for fairly obvious reasons uh, the, the confederate flag and confederate monuments are a natural place to stake out an identity there because those long ago ceased to be purely emblems of a kind of white Southern nationalism and became more of a white American nationalism uh, and, and, and have taken on that kind of um, that coloration and that sort of trans-regional meaning um, really over many decades now. So I think it's not surprising that he's dug in on this because I can't see where else he would have to go politically. I don't, I don't think he has a, a, a chance at, at moving beyond the coalition that elected him. He has to try to bring out more of the same voters uh, who reelected him, who perhaps haven't voted before, and doubling down on this may be the only play available to him at this point. Certainly the only one that comes naturally to him. With monuments, can you give us some historical background on how the argument of, of surrounding Confederate monuments has evolved in recent years and even in the last month? Well, as with the protests over George Floyd, you know, there's nothing new under the sun here. People have been protesting Confederate monuments for decades. 
uh, for longer than that, really. Uh, and, uh, you know, protest movements against the sort of cult of the lost cause and against its, its cultural expressions are at least as old as uh, the protests against Birth of a Nation in 1915 when it came out. So this is a long story. This is a long-standing protest movement against this celebration of the military and later the political leaders of the Confederacy and, and to, an, and, and to the, the soldiers of the Confederacy, and then sometimes uh, to the paramilitary forces of the war against Reconstruction, as in the monument to the Battle of Liberty Place in uh, New Orleans that just came down recently. So, you know, the, the struggle over these monuments has been going on for a very long time. Uh, and, and yet they've stayed up because the forces that, that installed them, mostly a century and more ago, uh, have been so successful at cultivating a vision of, as the bumper sticker had it, heritage, not hate, right? That, um, that these were representatives, these represented, quote, Southern heritage, uh, and that everyone should be proud of it, and that the Civil War was unfortunate, it, but it was a brother's war. It was a war in which, and here I'm just paraphrasing, paraphrasing and paraphrasing, but everyone was a hero because everyone fought for something they believed in. And, you know, you can see that in the veterans shaking hands across the stone wall at Gettysburg in those jerky old black and white films from the early 20th century. Um, now, what's missing in that, of course, is that's a war without black people. That's a war without slavery. That's a war without ideological meaning or content. And the Civil War was many things, but it was not a war without black people. It was not a war without slavery. It was not a war without ideological meaning or, or content. So um, it wasn't simple but it was saturated with, with, with content. Uh, and it was all about the future of slavery in the United States. By suppressing that knowledge and moving that knowledge offstage, the, the sons and daughters of the Confederacy, the grandchildren of Confederate veterans, moved uh, the conversation away from that ideological conflict and, a, and the question of the role and, and status and place of African-Americans in American life and toward sectional reconciliation among white people. And there that conversation remained really until uh, the Black Freedom Movement uh, after World War II. And only gradually uh, have uh, cultural and historical um, forces been able to chip away at that narrative of the lost cause and everyone was a hero because they fought for what they believed in and toward a harder headed um, kind of more clear eyed vision of the Civil War as a profound conflict over the, the future of slavery and the status of African Americans in American life. So that's where, that's where this conflict comes up. And it's, it's interesting that uh, one of the fruits of, of, the, of this, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter here in this, in this moment, this spring and summer has been uh, the demolition of so many of these uh, of these Confederate monuments. Uh, I never thought I would see Richmond's monuments come down, and yet that's happening. Uh, I thought Robert Lee, Robert E. Lee and Nathan Bitford Forrest would remain ensconced uh, in in all of these different locations uh, to the end of my days, but they're coming down. They're going into storage. They're going into other places, as they should, in my view. Uh, 
because you know we could talk about this at length, but monuments are expressions of our civic values. And the idea that Robert E. Lee or Nathan Bitford Forrest expresses our civic values in any way that we should uh, uh, promote, that's crazy. And yet that's, that's been kind of uh, contested, but regular feature of American life for my entire life. Yeah, what might this mean for statues and monuments here in Madison? I'm thinking of Abraham Lincoln on Bascom Hill or uh, the now torn down forward and John Hegg. Yeah, so just to focus on Lincoln, um, Lincoln is super complicated, especially on Bascom Hill. Now, there, there is an argument to be made, this, this is an argument in two parts. There is an argument to be made that Lincoln's overt and unapologetic white nationalism, and that's what it was for most of his life, including uh, a good deal of fairly frank, if not um, a vituperative racist expression, uh, means that he's no longer uh, a, a man for our time, despite, you know, leading the army and the nation uh, that restored the Union, um, and his role, of course, in slave emancipation. I think that that's too narrow a view of Lincoln, and in fact, from that perspective, I would argue that Lincoln kind of is a, a white man for, for our time, because the story of Lincoln during the Civil War is the story of a white political leader who begins uh, with a set of assumptions that are frankly white nationalist or white supremacist, and who over the course of the war, through watching the activity of black people and listening to what black and white advocates of equality are saying, listens, learns, changes his mind, and not only changes his mind in a kind of rhetorical way, but puts those puts those new ideas and values into practice, celebrating the contributions of black soldiers and civilians in the war effort. And by the end of the war, by the end of his life, calling for voting rights for black men. That is something the Lincoln of 1860 or 61 could never have contemplated. And the only reason it's happened by 1865 is that he has listened and learned uh, to black, from black people. And that's extraordinary. Uh, that is a Lincoln, that, that is a useful Lincoln for us and one that I think we can learn from. But there's another Lincoln and there's a more problematic Lincoln and that is the Lincoln uh, who was uh, a soldier in the Black Hawk War in 1832, an Illinois militiaman uh, who uh, traveled through the Ho-Chunk domain um, and served in the army that effectively conquered that domain forced the Ho-Chunk to give it up in the Treaty of 1832, represents the forces of colonialism and conquest, and is sitting on the top of the, you know, the tallest hill uh, in Madison, kind of the conqueror over the conquered land. As a friend of mine puts it, there is no respectful way to put Lincoln and the Ho-Chunk in the same frame. And that's a problem uh, that, that uh, does not admit of an easy solution, I'm afraid. Where do you think Joe Biden fits into this moment in history, like in, in this narrative? Well, the conventional wisdom is that Joe Biden has always tacked to the center of the Democratic Party coalition. The Democratic Party coalition is farther to the left than it has been in my lifetime, uh, or indeed in my parents' lifetime, probably. 
And therefore, uh, I would expect Joe Biden to uh, to be the leftmost uh, Democratic president of my adult life. Um, but uh, I could be wrong, and many things can happen between uh, between here and there. Um, you know, we we elect presidents to uh, to do a lot of work, and the kind of president he is or can be depends a lot on what he's willing to bring to this moment and uh, what kind of political courage and what kind of political vision and um, what kind of commitments. And I'm afraid we just don't know the answer to that yet. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Kandrowitz. Uh, I'm sure we are gonna wanna talk to you again very soon about all the important things that are happening and going on right now. So thank you again. I'll take care. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.